We're in Galatians, or Galatians. We just, she just read from Galatians. We're in Genesis, by the way. They both start with a G, right? So we're in Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 to 33. There's just half of this chapter, and uh, a couple of weeks from now, Pastor Mark will finish up uh, chapter 24, but this is Isaac and Rebecca. And as we think about this, we're going to see today um, that, you know, Abraham's servant is led by the Lord as he goes out to find, um, you know, a wife for Isaac. And so I want to begin with this illustration. Uh, the source is actually unknown, uh, but it's a pastor. We know that from, from the illustration itself. This is what he says. I, I made my pastoral calls in the county hospital and walked back to my car in the parking lot. Just as I, I reached out to the car door to get inside, I heard, I heard go see Bob. Bob was a retired fireman, seriously ill with heart problems and confined to a bed because of his ailment. He had recently made a decision to accept Christ and was making wonderful spiritual progress. I took what I heard to be the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But I protested, saying, I was there not, not long ago. It's not time yet to go back again. The prompting persisted, so I got into the car, pulled out of the lot, and headed for Bob's place. It was just a few minutes away, up a rural road, winding through beautiful northern California hills. I came to Bob's home, pulled into the driveway, and looked over to the big front window of the living room where Bob usually lay in a hospital bed. Bob was lying there, but he looked different. I thought to myself, he looks dead. I hurried to the front door and knocked. Evelyn, his wife, came to the door breathless and distraught. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Bob just died a few minutes ago. We sat together in the kitchen, not saying too much to each other as the man from the funeral home did his work in the other room, getting ready to remove my friend from the home. Quietly, when the time was right, I read from the scripture, and Evelyn and I prayed, seeking God in the loss of her husband. I've thought back many times to that afternoon, and I'm so glad that I followed the leading of the Spirit. I got there just as someone needed me most. You know, I've experienced those kind of divine promptings. Uh, in different times throughout my life. Most of you know the story about my divine calling to pastoral ministry and how that was confirmed by multiple people in the weeks following that calling. There have been times when I've sensed the Lord prompting me to pray for or call certain individuals, and it's always amazing to hear those individuals, uh, were go to hear what they were going through when I was prompted to pray for them. And it gives me chills when I call someone and they need to talk about a situation that they're going through and they needed just someone to talk to. You know, obedience to those promptings shows true faith. I befriended another man uh, who worked in the same suite beside the one that I worked in. And during a break one day, we were telling, uh, we were just, uh, he was telling me that he was considering moving in with his girlfriend to save on expenses. And the Lord had prompted me at that moment to challenge him not to do that, but I chickened out. I didn't say anything. And when I went back to my office, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying to me, you didn't do what I asked you to do. You needed to do what I asked you to do. And I was so convicted, and so I prayed and, and asked for forgiveness and then asked the Lord to give me another opportunity to challenge this man to do what was right because, you see, he had claimed the name of Christ. That opportunity came about a week later. We were standing outside again and chatting, and I, uh, it, it's a little more difficult to bring that back up than, than had I done it when the Holy Spirit had prompted me the first time. Because <laughs> now I have to breach that subject again, right? 
says, we're standing there talking. I was just saying to him, hey, you know, last week you were talking about moving in with your girlfriend and, and the Holy Spirit's challenged me to encourage you not to do that and to trust him to provide. And he, his response was, thank you, that's just what I needed to hear. I needed somebody to challenge me to do what was right. And so we need to be obedient to those promptings of the Holy Spirit because it shows our true faith. Uh, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we all have probably experienced a divine prompting at one time or another in our lives. And how, how do we respond to those promptings when they come? Perhaps like me, uh, we have all experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit for not being obedient to that prompting. Hopefully we have all experienced the blessing of obedience too. And as we come to this passage this morning... Abraham's getting older, and he's probably realizing that in order for God's promise to be fulfilled, that he would be uh, the father of a great nation, his son Isaac was going to have to get married and start having children, right? He's like, if this is going to work out, then Isaac has to find a wife, and he needs to start having children. So Abraham had a couple of criteria for this bride search that he had his chief servant swear to abide by. The servant understood the criteria, but asked what he should do if the woman refused to return with him. And Abraham reassured him of our big idea today, that where God guides, he provides. Chuck Smith is the very first person, I guess, who came up with that little phrase. But it's so true, where God guides, he provides. And so Abraham's faith had developed into a strong faith that trusted God to do what seemed humanly impossible. I want you to think for a moment. Think back over what we've already learned in the book of Genesis, and we see that Abraham's faith wasn't as strong as it is at this point in his life. You know, he's probably 140 years old. He's lived this incredible life. And, you know, the, the first time that this famine hits when he's in Canaan, he doesn't have faith to stay in Canaan. He goes to Egypt, right? And he doesn't have faith to trust that God's going to protect him and his wife. So he says to his wife, Sarah, you tell him, the, you tell the people of Egypt, you're my sister, right? Now he walks away having benefited from this, right? Pharaoh gives him all kinds of animals, gives him male and female servants, gives him gold and silver, and then a little bit later on, you know, in his life, he didn't learn that lesson very well, and he uh, comes into the land where Abimelech is king, and again, he does the same thing. His faith isn't very strong yet, and he says to his wife again, just tell the people of this nation that you're my sister. And then things start happening to Abimelech and his family, and he calls Abraham in, and he goes, what are you doing? Why are you treating me this way? And again, Abraham walks away with, more flocks and herds, more male and female servants, more gold and silver. God's trying to teach him that he can trust him. Abraham's faith is struggling because he's like, I'm going to have to give my estate to Eleazar, my chief uh, servant, because I don't even have a child. God says, no, you're going to have a child. Then he has this child, and God says to him, Abraham, I need you to sacrifice your one and only son, the covenant son. And Abraham, we begin to see his faith that it's grown and gotten stronger. Because what does he say when Isaac says to him, hey, well, we have, we have the fire, and we have the wood, and, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. You see the growth that goes. And then we see Abraham coming here, and we're going to see him again with this just incredible faith to do what seems humanly impossible. 
And he's encouraging his chief servant where God guides, he provides. And so let's just commit to this passage to the Lord in prayer today. Lord, we come to you um, as, as your children. Lord, we just want to sit at your feet today. And we want to hear your voice. Would you speak through your servant today that we might hear your voice only? Lord God, would we, would we be like Mary, seeking what is good to sit at your feet and learn from you? And so we commit this passage to you today, Lord God, because it's your word for your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are six points today. You're like, oh no. But they're not all very long. <laughs> they all start with the letter P. So if you're writing, just get ready to write a, a, a P word down. The first one is promise. We see that in verses 1 to 9 in uh, Genesis chapter 24. We see this promise here. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief a servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if... Uh, the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land. Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, uh, Master Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So we see this promise here. We see Abraham's state. What, what state is he in? We know his age, and we're going to see his status as well. The narrator tells us that Abraham is now old, well advanced in years. It's believed that Abraham is almost 140 year old, 40 years old at this point, which means that Isaac would be 40 years old. Sarah has been gone around two to three years, uh, so this is uh, two to three years after what we just talked about in chapter 23. We see his status, then. He is blessed uh, by God abundantly. Matthews, in his commentary, says, Age and wealth are often signs of a blessed life. God had promised to give him long life, and that had happened. <clears throat> and he's going to live a little bit longer still. And God had blessed Abraham in every way. I just mentioned that he gave him long life. He gave him flocks and herds, gold and silver, male and female servants. We already talked about where those came from. Promised, a promised covenant son and a promised land, a country of his own, where God was going to establish him although Abraham was going to see that in his lifetime. The narrator moves from Abraham's state to a conversation that he has with his chief servant. Now, as we think about the chief servant here in verses 2 to 4, most Bible translations have it as his oldest or eldest servant. From that translation, many scholars believe that it could be Eleazar, this uh, most trusted servant and household administrator, <clears throat> but we're not sure, we're not told that. Genesis chapter 15, verse 2 tells us this, but Abraham, but Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. So again, we're not told that if it's 
We're not told if it's Eleazar, but if it is, he would also be old and advanced in years. And he's asking him to do this long track that we'll see in just a moment. Then Abraham uh, asks him to put his hand under his thigh. Now, this must have been the customary way for oaths to be sworn in the ancient Near East. The hand would actually be put under the male reproductive organ since that was the source of life, the source of offspring. Westerman says this, the right of touching the generative organ when taking an oath occurs elsewhere only in Genesis 47:29 with Jacob, where the circumstances are the same, namely imminent death. The one who is facing death secures his last will by an oath uh, at the source of life. And so he says, uh, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. This is not a deity that the Canaanites or Abraham's relatives in Mesopotamia worship. They weren't worshiping the God who deserves to be called God. He is the God of the creation and the cosmos. That's why he says the God of heaven and the God of earth. He's talking about the true and living God here. And Abraham urges his servant not to choose a wife from Isaac or for Isaac from the Canaanites. He instructs him to go back to Mesopotamia to find a wife from among his own relatives. Now, what we have to understand here is Abraham's relatives were also polytheistic in their beliefs. So perhaps Abraham is more concerned about ethnic purity than religious practice. He's like, I just want you to go get um, a wife from my family instead of from the Canaanites. But they were both... Uh, worshiping other gods and not the true and living God. And so the instructions given by Abraham caused his servant to ask two legitimate questions that we see in verses 5 to 8. What if the woman does not want to come back to Canaan with me? Now keep in mind that the distance from Canaan to Mesopotamia is around 400 miles. That's quite a trek. It would take about a month for this servant to travel to Abraham's home area. The woman would be leaving everything she knows and embracing her new family. There wouldn't be any weekend trips home to visit her mom and sisters. When she was expecting children, she wouldn't expect her family to come and visit. None of that was going to take place. She would be making a life-changing decision to accept the marriage proposal. And the servant wants to know Abraham's wishes in case Abraham passed away while he was gone. Because it was going to be a month to get there, however long it was going to be for him to find this woman, and then a month to bring her back. It's going to be quite a while. So he's like, I need to know what your will and desire is in case you're not here when I get back. Do you want me to take him, uh, take Isaac back to Mesopotamia if she doesn't want to come here? So if she's unwilling to return... Do you want me to take him back to Mesopotamia? And the servant wants to know which criteria is most important to his master, a wife from his own people or remaining in Canaan. And we see Abraham's answer to the two questions. Don't take Isaac back to Mesopotamia. He says it twice. Don't do it. Don't let him go back there. God promised to establish my offspring in Canaan. That's what Abraham's telling his servant. And perhaps Abraham was concerned that if Isaac left Canaan, that he would never return. Abraham believed God's promise with all his heart, and he never looked back. We talked about that in the last message. He just kept moving forward. He didn't look back. And so we see the first principle today. It actually comes out of Warren Wearsby's commentary. True faith always results in obedience. It would have been easy for Abraham to abandon Canaan and return to what was familiar, right? But he held to God's promise by faith. And this is true for us as well. When God calls us out of our comfort zone, when he asks us to follow him to a place that is far away from family and friends, do we follow in faith 
or do we resist in doubt and fear? I was working for Child Evangelism Fellowship in Ohio. I was the state director at the time, and the vice president of USA Ministries uh, had contacted me and said, we would like you to consider coming and being the associate director of finance and administration at the USA Ministries Department at the headquarters. And I said, no, no, that's not for me. Several months later, he contacts me again and says, Stuart, you, you know, your gifts and abilities and your background and your, your schooling, we really need you here at the headquarters. And I said, no. <laughs> Third time, he contacted me and said, Stuart, we'd like you to consider coming. And Judy and I had prayed through all of those invitations, and finally that third time we felt like God was calling us to transition to the headquarters of Child Evangelism Fellowship. You see, moving to Missouri was going to mean that we were going to move away from family because Judy's family lived in Ohio. It means that we weren't going to have any family nearby. The closest family that I had was in Wichita, Kansas, which isn't that close to Warrington, Missouri. We went to go visit them once while we were out that way. And then God called us to move from Missouri to California. <laughs> that was even further away. And there definitely wasn't any family out there. And we had faith that God was calling us to both of those places, so we obeyed in faith, trusting him. And he blessed us with incredible friends and neighbors who became our surrogate family. Levi was just a little fella at this point in Missouri. He was born in Missouri. And um, our neighbors, uh, right next door to us, when we couldn't find Levi in our house, and when we couldn't find him outside our house, we went next door. And he was there getting popsicles. And it was his favorite thing to do. So at least we knew where he was. But we tried to encourage him to let us know when you're going next door. But they became like surrogate grandparents for our kids. They were just a great couple. And the people in the church became our close friends. My best friend uh, was Dwayne Carter. Worked with him at CEF. We went to church together. He's home with the Lord now. And so my question to you today is a couple, a couple of questions. Is God calling you to obey him by faith in a particular area? And are you resisting that calling? So that takes us to the first next step on the back of your communication card today. And that's to obey the Lord's calling on my life and follow him by faith. What's he calling you to? It could be any, any number of things. Maybe he's calling you to, to volunteer in a particular way here at church. Maybe he's calling you to share the gospel with your neighbor. Maybe he's calling you to go on the mission field somewhere other than in the United States. Maybe he's calling you. I don't know what he's calling you to do, but are you being obedient to him? Or are you resisting him out of fear and doubt? Abraham knew from past experiences that God would provide, and so he encourages his chief servant. Abraham reassures his servant that God would send his angel before him to prepare the way for his success. You see, where God guides, he provides. Abraham was confident in God's ability to transform the heart and mind of a young woman to accept the adventure of a lifetime. She had no idea what she was going to step into. She was going to be uh, part of the fulfillment of a great nation. As great as the stars in the sky and the, and the sand on the seashore. She was going to be a part of that great adventure. Abraham then helps to put his servant's mind at ease. He says, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, and I kind of think he's thinking in his mind, but she will, uh, then you will be released from the oath. 
Abraham reiterates again that he does not want Isaac to go back to Mesopotamia. And with his, with his questions answered and his mind at ease, Abraham's servant is willing to swear the oath. And so Abraham's servant places his hand under his master's thigh. And while doing that, he promises to find a wife for Isaac from Abraham's family in Mesopotamia and not to take Isaac back there. And once the oath is sworn, it's time to prepare for the trip. And so we're going to see uh, preparation before he leaves and after he arrives. Verses 10 and 11. Look at those with me if you would. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out from Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He, put, he had the camels kneel down <coughs> near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. And so the servant took ten camels and loaded them down with all kinds of good things, other translations say choice things, expensive things. Now, we're not told what these good, joy, choice, expensive things are, except when we get to verse four, or 22, we find out that there's a, a gold nose ring and two gold bracelets and how much they weigh. The narrator leaves us in suspense as, the, uh, as to the other items that the servant took as a bride price, but I'm sure it was good stuff. We see the location in Mesopotamia. We're told that the servant goes to the town of Nahor in the region of Aram Naharaim. The town of Nahor can either refer to the actual name of the town or to the town where Abraham's brother Nahor lived, which is perhaps Haran. And then this Aram Naharaim means Aram of the two rivers. So this is in northwestern Mesopotamia, which is uh, modern-day northern Syria and Iraq. And the two rivers would have been the Euphrates and not the Tigris, but its tributary, the Habor. And this was the preparation for the trip. We see the second principle today then. God will direct us when we trust and obey his word. He's going to guide and direct us. Abraham's servant has a general idea of where he's supposed to go, right? He did not have a global positioning system. He had a God positioning system that was guiding him and telling him where to go. He didn't have an atlas. He didn't have any of that kind of stuff. He did have the stars, which he probably used those as a navigation. This is more than Abraham had when he left Haran. If this chief servant had been with Abraham since he left Haran, then he would, have, he would know where to go, um, but we're not given that information here. He has to trust and obey God's word of guidance as he travels north. And when we obey God's leading by faith, he will direct us where to go and what to do. And we can claim that truth for our lives today. God will direct us when we trust and obey his word. Now, between verses 10 and 11, about a month passes. That's the whole trip. And then we see the preparation that he does after he arrives in verse 11. He has the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. This was strategic on the servant's part. He was preparing to watch the evening trek to the well by the young women of the town. What better way to encounter women who could be potential wife material for Isaac? He's not stupid. He knows the, the culture of the day, so he's like, I'm going to set up right here. He's not going to wander around through town trying to find who these young women are that are potential brides. He's right where they're all going to come. And so he sets up and he prepares and he waits. And, and there's a, one more vital part of his preparation, which is our next point, prayer. 
Look at verses 12 to 21. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels, too, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And so he addresses the Lord this way, he says, uh, since he is Abraham's liaison, he addresses the Lord as the God of my master Abraham. Now, this doesn't mean that he didn't have his own faith in God. I, I don't want you to be, misunderstand that today. But he is representing Abraham. So he's crying out to the God of Abraham for success. And he says, too, will you show kindness to my master Abraham? The servant needs to know which young woman is God's choice for Isaac. So he asks for two specific things to identify her. First, when I ask a girl for a drink, she'll lower the jar and give me a drink. Second, without prompting, she will recognize that my camels need water and offer to give them water too. So he petitions the Lord again to show kindness to his master Abraham. And aren't you glad that the Lord knows what we need before we ask? He tells us that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. And because he knows before we ask, he is already acting on our behalf. The Lord had already prompted Rebekah to leave her house and head to the well while Abraham's servant's praying. It's like he, she's already on her way. The answer's already coming. And he hasn't even finished his prayer. The narrator gives us some key pieces of information here. First, he gives us some genealogy. He does not keep us in suspense about whether or not Rebekah is part of Abraham's family. While the servant does not yet know it, we are given insider information. Rebekah is the daughter of Bethuel, who is, and she is the granddaughter of Nahor and Milcah, Abraham's brother and sister-in-law. Then he gives us some other attributes that, again, this servant has no idea about. Rebekah is very beautiful. He's probably referring to her outward appearance. She is a virgin. Now, in our culture, that means she'd never slept with anyone, so why is he saying, and she never slept with anyone? You know, she'd never been with a man. In the ancient Near East, it does not necessarily mean she was not she had not been sexually active, but rather it means that she is of marriable age. So she's very beautiful. She's of the age where she can be married. And then the narrator goes on and says she is pure. No man had ever lain with her, which, is our modern, which in our modern culture means that she was a virgin. She had not been sexually active. And again, the servant is not aware of those attributes when he sees her, except perhaps her beauty. At the moment, the servant's relying on the criteria he has asked the Lord about. Rebecca went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant is hopeful, so he hurries over to meet her. I'm assuming that Rebecca is the first woman to come to the well, which is why he hurries over to meet her. He's hopeful and enthusiastic about the Lord's ability to answer his prayer. 
Just imagine if he had already approached multiple women and they had rejected his request for a drink, or if they had given him a drink but didn't offer to water his camels. I don't think that his demeanor would have been the same hurriedness that he had when he went to go see Rebecca. I think God just answered that prayer and brought her as the very first young lady. And so when he asks her for a drink, she lowers her jar and gives him a drink. Then she offers to draw water for his camels until they're satisfied. And she doesn't waste time. It says she empties her jar into the trough, and she ran back down to the well to get more water and continues this process until all the camels were taken care of. Now, there's 10 camels, right? And if they haven't uh, had a drink for a couple of days, they could consume as much as 25 gallons of water to rehydrate. How many gallons is that? It's 250. The, on average, a water jar in the ancient Near East would hold three gallons, or up to three gallons. How many trips is Rebecca having to make? A little over 83. Do you see why that criteria is so important? What, what's, what's, what's it, how big of a deal is it to just lower your jar and give a man a drink of water? But boy, is it important when out of love and hospitality and service that Rebecca goes, I'll water your camels too, as long as it takes. Corson in his commentary says, when you see a man or a woman going out of his or her way to minister, you have found someone very special. And that's what the servant's going to find in Rebecca. While she is serving the needs of the camels, the servant's quietly watching her to discern if the Lord had made his journey a success. We can assume that he left, um, that he felt certain that the Lord had made his journey a success by what he does next. Look at verses 22 to 25. The next point is presentation. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? So there's more than just one guy there. She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, born to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. And so what we see here is the presentation. The camels were satisfied and the servant is satisfied. So he takes out a gold nose ring and two gold bracelets. It's apparent that he gives these items to her because in verse 30, Laban, her brother, saw her wearing them. And then we see the request here. He, a he asks her whose daughter she is and if there's room in her father's house uh, for he and his companions to spend the night. She tells him that she is the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah and Nahor. She answers his second request by telling him that they have plenty of resources and space to house uh, them for the night. And so we see the third principle today is that God answers prayer. We see that God answered the prayer of the servant through Rebecca. She willingly gave him a drink of water and then offered to water his camels. I'm a huge proponent of praying specific prayers because then we know when God answers them. And I definitely learned this when we were in Southern California with the church that we attended. The pastor would say when somebody said, well, you know, my leg, I need healing in my leg. And he would go, which leg? Where at? He wanted specifics, and we prayed specifically, and we watched God heal specifically and do incredible things. He would ask very specific questions to get to the core 
of what this prayer request is all about. Now, I'm not talking about prayer, uh, praying specific prayers to try to corner God or prosper us as individuals. You know, when we talk with children about praying uh, specific prayers, we're not, you know, God's probably not going to answer that prayer. Can I have a room full of jelly beans? Right? Because he knows that you, when you eat all those, your, your stomach's going to be sick and you're not going to feel well. But when we pray specific prayers according to God's will and the purposes that we find in his word, he answers those prayers. Each week we share praise reports for answered prayer on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. We have to remember that God answers prayer in three ways, yes, no, and wait. There are times when we feel like God has not answered our prayers because we did not get the answer we wanted or hoped for. So we actually missed his answer. And how we react to answered prayer is so important. And that's what we see next in verses 26 and 27. Our next point is praise. This is what God's word says. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So we see him praising the Lord here. He bowed down and worshiped the Lord right in front of Rebekah, presumably. He again addresses his praise to the Lord, the God of his master, Abraham. He acknowledges that the Lord had been kind and faithful to Abraham. And our fourth principle today is this, that God is faithful. We can trust in the faithfulness of God. That is his character, and his character never changes. How have we seen the faithfulness of God? At Idaville Church, we've seen the faithfulness of God through his provision for our finances, through salvations and baptisms, through spiritual growth, through the revitalization of the church, and so much more. Personally, we have seen God's faithfulness through, through answered prayer for our own family members, through God's uh, provision for us financially, through healings, through his protection, and so much more. How have you seen God's faithfulness in your life? I want you to take a moment just to write a couple of things down, or at least put them to memory. How have you seen God's faithfulness in your life? And the reason I want you to write them down or think about them right now is because it's going to be important as we close our service today. The servant also recognized the Lord's faithfulness to him. He acknowledges that the Lord had led him to the house of his master's relatives. This was Abraham's nephew's family that the servant would be staying with. We see our final principle today that worship is the right response to God's faithfulness. When is the last time you've bowed down before the Lord and worshiped him for his faithfulness? In our business, we may neglect to even thank the Lord for his faithfulness and answers to our prayers, let alone bow down before him and worship him. That's what we see the servant doing. He is so grateful that the right response is to get on his knees before the Lord and worship him. So the final next step today on the back of your communication card is to bow down before the Lord and worship for his faithfulness to me. And we're going to give you, everyone, the opportunity to do that before the Lord this morning during the closing song. I'll give you more instructions when we get there. Rebecca understands the significance of what is taking place, so she runs back to her house. We see the final point this morning, and it's provision. 
and verses 28 to 33. Look at those verses with me if you would. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebekah tell what the man had said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. So Rebecca has this pronouncement. She tells her family what happened when she went to draw water at the well. And perhaps they were wondering where she was, since it probably took her a long, long time to water those camels. She was gone longer than she normally had been gone. And so they were like, oh, that's why you were gone so long. Okay, who is this fella? And we learned that Rebecca had a brother named Laban. That name should sound familiar, and he'll play a significant role with Isaac and Rebecca's son, Jacob. And then we see this hospitality that's extended Perhaps Laban was running the household at this point, which is why Bethuel does not go out to greet the servant. It's probable that Laban either made preparations prior to going to the spring or gave instructions to the household servants to make preparations for this entourage. Laban hurried out to meet Abraham's servant and invited him to stay with them. And perhaps the gifts that he gave Rebekah and his worship of the Lord prompted Laban to address him as blessed by the Lord. And the servant followed Laban back to Bethuel's house. And we see what hospitality was shared here. The camels were unloaded and given bedding and food. Water was brought for the travelers to wash their feet. Food was brought out for the men to eat. But we have this urgent message that he has for them. Since the Lord has so graciously and faithfully answered his prayer, the servant did not want to eat first. He's like, I have to tell you why I'm here. He wanted to share the purpose of his trip. And Laban encourages him to tell them. But that's a narrative for another time. Two weeks from now. As we review this morning, are you ready to obey the Lord's calling on your life and follow him by faith? What's he calling you to? Are you ready to bow down before the Lord and worship for his faithfulness to you? You know, we can encourage those in our congregation by affirming the calling that God has placed on their lives, coming around them and supporting them, however he's calling them. We can model worship for God's faithfulness by bowing down before him. And as the worship team leads us this morning in the closing song, I want to encourage everyone to come forward and bow down before the Lord in worship of his faithfulness. I ask you to think about or write down how you've seen God's faithfulness in your life. Now I understand that not everybody can kneel. So the first couple of pews are open. If you want to just come and sit there this morning, if you want to stand, you're welcome to stand. But if you can come and bow before the Lord this morning, this altar is open as we sing the song Waymaker. And so would you stand with us? And let me just close the message in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that we see in Abraham's servant, that when he recognized your faithfulness, that he worshiped you. He got on his knees before you, Lord God, and, and was grateful for your faithfulness. <clears throat> Lord, we are grateful for your faithfulness today. And now, Lord, we come and we bow before you as we worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.